invite you to turn to the ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians and read along with me beginning of verse 19. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without the law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that by all means, that I by all means might save some or win some. And I do all things for the sake of the gospel, that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Hugh Heffner, the playboy czar, said, that every little boy lies on his back and dreams the same dream. It's this. When I get big, I'm going to be rich. And I'm going to have me a mansion so big that you could park two 707 jets in it side by side. And in the bedroom, I'm going to have a bed that's big enough to play a football game on between the Green Bay Packers and the New York Giants. And downstairs, I'm going to have a golden chandelier and teakwood furniture. And I'm going to have an Angora rug that you'll sink up to your knees in. And in the den, there's going to be a trap door that opens up to the basement where I'm going to have a kidney-shaped swimming pool. There, he thought, I will discard all my unwanted women. What dominates your dreams? I mean, what is the driving compel compulsion of your life that compels you and almost consumes you? Well, for the Apostle Paul, it was not teakwood furniture and kidney-shaped swimming pools. The strange, magnificent obsession of this man was that he, would, he might win people to faith in Christ. So five times in the short space of five sentences, these four words occur, like the theme of, of great music, that I might win. It was not just the dominating theme of this paragraph. It was the compelling theme of his life, the high music of his life. And no language is too strong to describe it. For every tributary of his personality flowed into this mainstream until it became a torrent. It was the deepest prayer of his life. It was the highest purpose. It was the compelling power that drove him across Asia Minor with a cross on his back that I might win some. And even though he was on trial for his liberty and probably for his life, 
Everything else faded into insignificance in his desire to win his judge. And he says, I would to God, O Agrippa, that not just you, but everyone who hears my voice might be as I am, except for these chains. Isn't it a sad day when an institution or an individual loses that compelling drive to win people to the Lord? You remember when you were saved? You wanted everybody to be saved. You thought you could win the world and wanted to and tried. Isn't it a tragedy that that burning heart, that burning desire has waned and there is a strange noise abroad in the land. Let the professionals win people to the Lord. That's what we pay them for. Listen again. To the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men that by all means I might save, win some. Four simple incontrovertible truths. First, you will not win everybody. You will, you will not win them all. Not everybody's going to be saved. Tragically, but true. Not everybody will be saved. The Apostle Paul goes into it right up front that I might save some with an understanding that not everybody will be saved. There'll be some who will go out of this audit auditorium this morning who will be lost perhaps and lost forever. Not everybody will come to the, to the Lord. I had a hard time dealing with that when I first started preaching. One time a guy asked me, he said, how do you handle the fact that on Sunday morning you get up and you preach your heart out and people reject and are still lost. Well, the way you handle that is that you go, right in, you go into it right up front understanding that not everybody will be saved. Just think how that made the Apostle Paul feel. He was the one who said, I'd be willing to be a cursed anathema if it would affect Israel's salvation. Just think how it must have made the Lord feel. For they rejected His message. They rejected Him. Think how He must have agonized over Judas, one of His own disciples. And the Bible says that one day a young man came to Jesus. We call him the rich young ruler because he was rich and he was young and he was of the ruling class, a class that looked upon Jesus and his works as anathema. Anybody who was of the ruling class that associated with this Nazarene would be blacklisted and ostracized forthwith. But he didn't care. He was desperate. And so he came running to Jesus, driven to Christ by this sense of incompleteness. What lack I yet, he said, as he fell before the Lord. He was no Augustine who had a fiercely accusing conscience. He wasn't a John Bunyan who feared that he had committed a sin against the Holy Ghost. He was just a man who had this strange agonizing awareness that he was of an emptiness, this inner feeling that he had missed the mark. And so he came to Jesus. There are numerous, there are many reasons why people come to the Lord. Some are drawn to him by some 
mother's prayer or the sound of some great worship. Some are driven to Christ by some sorrow or devastating wound. I was not so much drawn to religion, said William Cooper, as I was scourged into it. Not this man. He came to Jesus because he was drawn to him out of this gnawing awareness away sorrowful and the Bible says that Jesus looked on him and loved him and I reckon that he left behind an even more sorrowing Christ who must have wanted to call out after him come back young man maybe we can compromise come back young man maybe we can meet a middle ground but he didn't because he knew from the very beginning that broad was the way that leads to destruction, and many go on it. And he knew right up front that not everybody will be saved. Tragedy of tragedies. Now why is it that some go away? Maybe it's because of some secret besetting sin. Maybe because of the radicalness of the, of the gospel's demands. Maybe it's because they are steeped in traditionalism and don't want to change. Whatever reason, the fact remains, you'll not win them all. Second truth. God wants to use you to win some. The marvelous thing about this passage is that it dictates to us the truth of the profound effect one man can have on his world if that one man is submitted to God. Well, you say now the Apostle Paul is an exception to the rule. No, he's not an exception. He is an example of what can happen when a man is submitted to God. For in the, in the, in the purposes of God to win the world, the number one is the most important and the most important factor in changing our world is one individual submitted to God. One individual submitted to God. Meredith, Wis Meredith Wilson has a love song. It goes like this. There were birds in the air, but I never saw them winging. No, I never saw them at all until there was you. There were bells on the hills, but I never heard them ringing. No, I never heard them at all until there was you. And there was music and there were wonderful roses, they tell me, in sweet, fragrant meadows of dawn and dew. And there was love all around me, and I never heard it singing. No, I never heard it at all until there was you. Now, I know that's a love song, but it sets forth the principle that abides, and it's this, that one person can have a profound effect on another person. Hear me listen carefully. There are some who will never see God unless they see Him in you. There are some who will never hear the Father unless they hear Him in you. There are some who will never feel Messiah unless they feel Him in you. For the fact is, that it's God who does the wooing and the winning. All He wants is, a, is an individual submitted to Him through whom He can woo and through whom He can win. 
And that means that God doesn't send us out into the world, into a hostile world where He's never been. He invites us to follow Him into a world where He is going to bear witness. And that means that you will never encounter one person in this world that has not been touched in some way by the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine how Ananias must have felt when God told him one day, He said, I want you to bear witness to a man. His name is... Saul, and I imagine he began to quake when he heard that. He must have thought, isn't that the guy that's killing the Christians? And you know how God persuaded Ananias to go and witness to Saul when he understood that God had already been at work in the life of this man and had a purpose for his life. And you know the first thing that Ananias said to Saul when he got to him? He said, the God who appeared to you sent me. Now listen, young people. The frightening thing about bearing witness is this, that we think that God is calling out eloquent and and um, skillful and persuasive and dynamic communicators and those are the kind of people he uses and we're not. But the fact is that God's not hung up on that. That God is already, He's the one who does the communicating and he does, He's the one who does the speaking and the wooing and the winning. He just needs a, an instrument through whom He can do that. And the Bible and, the, and, and church history is replete with examples of that happening. Now listen carefully, I want to give you three of them. You may have read how hard it is to bear, how hard it was to bear the gospel into Burma. And you may know about uh, Adoniram Judson being in Burma and the difficulty of trying to win people there. You probably don't know about a man named George Boardman. George Boardman was a man six foot five inches tall, a giant of a man who went to a Burmese tribe of people in the foothills of the Himalayas, 200,000 of them. And when he went there, the first time he preached, a hundred people were saved. And before he left that little Himalayan village, or left those people, a hundred thousand out of the 200,000 embraced Christianity. Now what was the difference? Well, here's the secret. Hundreds of years before George Boardman ever went in there, these people had learned from their tradition and from their stories handed down that one day a giant would come to their land with a black book and he would read from that black book and tell them how to live. And he didn't know that. He just went compelled by God that God would use him. And when he got there, he opened, he, he said, when he held out his Bible, their eyes bugged out on their stems and he said they listened for life and death and when he read from this black book, they were saved. You probably have never heard about a man named Albert Bland who in 1945 decided he would trek into southern Ethiopia because he felt God leading him there and he wanted to be used of God. He was warned these people have never heard the gospel and they're heathens. He couldn't even speak their language. He knew a few words. It was a hot summer day when he, he, he tracked across the mountains into southern Ethiopia and he was tired. He thought, I'll sit down under the shade of that sycamore tree and rest. 
And he sat down on the shade of that tree and went to sleep, not knowing that that was a sacred ground for their religion and no man was allowed there. And when he woke up, he saw this tribe of people gathered around him, uh, looking at him. He thought, I'm done for, I'm finished. But he could tell that they were not hostile, they were receptive. And he said, the eyes were fastened on my book, my Bible. And he, and he didn't know it, but in their traditions and in their history handed down was the tradition that one day a fair-skinned man would stand under that sacred sycamore tree and tell them how to live. And when he preached, not even knowing their language, everybody in the village was saved, including Narasso, the, the chief, a medicine man. A few years ago, two young women just a little bit older than you sitting right on that row right there decided they'd go visiting one night with their church in Roswell, New Mexico just as they went every visitation night. But this night it was different. They felt that God had told them that they were to go to the worst bar in town witness and that He told them just to pull up in the parking lot and witness to the first person that came out. The pastor didn't want them to go there because it was dangerous for women, especially for women to do that, but because they felt God told them to do it, He allowed them. And they parked in the parking lot of this bar in Roswell, New Mexico. And a man came out of the bar and they went up to, they accosted him in the parking lot and said, God sent us here to witness to you. And the man turned pale as a sheet and he said, Last night I dreamed that God would send two women to this parking lot and would lead me to faith in Christ. Now, I want you to understand what I'm trying to communicate from this scripture. Listen carefully. God is more at work in the lives of the people around you than you think He is. Not long ago, a young lady sat in my office who months before was a party animal that you would be a, afraid, embarrassed to talk to. to you, you'd be afraid to try to tell her about Jesus because she was one of the original party animals who had come to faith in Christ. And I asked her, I said, what turns you around? This girl is a senior in Durant High School. I said, what effected the change for you? And she told me. Then she said this, she said, all the time that I was doing that, I wanted to be a Christian. And all the time I was doing that, I wanted to be at church. Now I'm not going to tell you that everybody out there is going to pick up the yellow pages today and look up the word church and look up and try to find your name. But I am going to tell you this, that God is more at work in the lives of people than we give Him credit for. And all He needs is somebody through whom He can witness. You believe that? No, you don't. You'd be doing it. Third truth. We need to do everything we can to win some. Now listen to what He said. He said, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I became all things to all men, that by all means I might save some. Now I'm, not going, to, I'm going to tell you what he did not mean. He did not say that I've given in to expediency. He was not saying I have sacrificed or compromised my conviction or commitment to God. He wasn't saying that at all. 
He wasn't saying, I become a good old boy that everybody likes and I just do everything that everybody else does so I can be popular and accepted and heard. He didn't say that. He wasn't saying, I'm some kind of a human chameleon that takes the shape and the shade of my environment. And he did not, he was not one of those characters like Mr. Facing Mr. Both Ways in John Bunyan's Pilgrim Progress. He wasn't one of those. You've seen enough of those to turn you off already. What he is saying is this. I try to understand the hurts of the people around me. And I try to put myself up alongside that person next to me and try to feel as he feels. And if there's somebody who believes that you have to have a certain discipline of life, then I accept their discipline for myself, even though it, I may not think it's necessary. And if there's something in my life, he said, that is a stumbling block for anybody else, I give it up. What he's saying is, I've sacrificed my rights under the demand and the desire to win people to Christ. Let me see if I can illustrate it. Listen carefully. He or she moved in to this school. Really, he's a first-class nerd. I mean, she's a real loser sitting in the class with you. And she's estranged and, and she's frightened and she's confused about and you look across at her and you're thinking to yourself I need to say a word of encouragement but I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to get hung if I reach out to her she'll probably latch on to me like a leech I got my own friends I don't need that nerd if I reach out to him he'll be at my house he'll be calling me I have my own friends Sunday morning, the teacher says, we need, we're going to have a youth revival and there's some names here of some people that we'd like for you to send a card or give a call and you recognize his name, her name immediately. So you get on the horn and you say, hey, we want you in Sunday school. Yeah. You know how far that goes? You know what the Apostle Paul is saying? He's saying this, young people, he's saying this, adults. You can put that, fill in the blank however you want it. But you're not going to win some. If you put yourself out up here in some kind of an ivory tower and you shout a witness down, that's totally unrelated to your life. It won't work. The Apostle Paul says... This is how I, I understand how I'm going to win some. I'm going to pour my life into their life. I'm going to give up if it's necessary to give up. I'm going to accept discipline if it's necessary. I'm going to, I'm going to pay the price to see people come to the Lord. Now what I am not asking you to do, young people, this morning, some, sometimes youth ministers will get up and say, I want to ask you of a, for a commitment that you would be willing to die for Christ. I'm not going to ask too easy. I'm asking you for a commitment you would be willing to live such a way that it might mean total rejection. I mean, dying for the Lord is no problem. The martyr never intended to die. Listen to this. There is not one single martyr who ever thought, I'm going to live, I'm going to, I'm going to die for the Lord. What he intended to do was to live in such a way 
that it would cause people to kill him if it was necessary. That's the tough part. And it just may be, you know, we find comfort in our minds and our hearts when we know that, that the Lord looks down upon Durant and he, he's, he's disturbed that it's full of lost people. And that comforts us to know that God cares like that. But let me take that a little bit farther. Listen to me carefully. What if we took that a little bit farther and we said that the Lord looks down on Durant and is disturbed and asks, why is this city still lost when I've placed my people there? That's a different question. Why are those people in, in your class at school, why are those people on your street still lost when the Lord has placed you there? Is it because we have lost our Savior? Is it because we are not paying the price to win them? For when Jesus called men to follow Him, He called them not in spite of the cross, but because of it. And He, know, and he, he wants us to know that in order to win some, you're going to have to pay a price to do it. Incontrovertible truth. One last thought, please, and I'm through. There's a reward in winning some. Hear me now carefully. Verse 23, I had never read before until I did an exegesis of this. You know what verse 23 says? It says, he says, I have become all things to all men that I might win some so that I can be a partaker of the gospel. I thought he already was a partaker of the gospel. What he's saying is this, that there is something missing until you share your faith and win some. There's something missing. There is a, there is a power, there is a provision, a redemptive effect, there is a joy that you will never experience until you win some. The Apostle Paul is saying, I don't want to miss out on anything. I don't want to miss all that's involved here for me. I don't want to miss the joy of winning people to the Lord. So I'm going to do everything I can to win them so I can partake in that of myself. It's exactly what John was talking about in his epistle when he said, we have handled the Lord we have seen Him with our eyes. We have touched Him with our hands. We have heard Him with our ears. Now what could be greater than that? I mean, could there be anything else greater than seeing Him with our own eyes, hearing Him with our own ears, touching Him with our own hands? But John said, Therefore we share Him with you in order that our joy might be completed. You know what he's saying? He's saying that there is an incompleteness to your faith even though you have seen Him with your eyes, heard Him with your ears, and touched Him with your hands until you share Him with somebody else. You can touch Him with your hands and see Him yourself and hear Him with your ears, but your joy is not fulfilled until you win some. Until you win some. 
And about 90% of the people who are sitting in these pews this morning will live and go out of this life and stand before God and miss that, and miss that. A man by the name of Frederick Wilkes is the, is, the, is the editor of Atlantic Monthly. One day a lady wrote him this story and I'm through. She said, my husband, this, Frederick Wilkes is, a, is an avid fisherman. She said, my, my husband would like to fish, but he doesn't know anything about it. And he doesn't have anything to fish with. He said, he's retired now and he, he'd like to be, be a fisherman, but he doesn't know anything about rods and reels and lures and stuff. He said, could you, could you give me some hints as to tell him what to buy so he can fish? And, and Wilkes wrote back this statement. Listen carefully. She said, what your husband needs is an old pair of sneakers and an old pair of trousers and a bottle of insect repellent. For what he needs is just the joy of catching fish. Let him find out how not to catch them later on. What you need if Christianity has become stale and ineffective, if all you have is a Sunday school and church attendance record, what you need is the joy of catching fish. What you need, young people, after you've had all that you've experienced this week is the joy there's a high, it's a high moment when you take the hand of somebody and place that hand in the Lord's hand. That's a high moment. Now what this text says, I remind you, is this. You'll not win them all, but it'll be amazing how easy it's going to be to win some when you are sold out to God, when you're willing to do everything you can to be in the position for God to use you. And when you do that, you're going to discover a joy that's above all joys. You're going to partake of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, there is an excitement. God, there is such an excitement when we think about the possibilities that are here before me today of young people taking seriously the winning of the loss to faith in Christ. And I know, Lord, that there are many of us who've never known that joy. And I pray this morning for a commitment just like this. Lord, I want to be in a position for you to use me to make an impact on those around me. And I'm willing to go to any measure, to go to any extreme, to be there in the place where you can use me. Grant that decision from every heart, for I pray in Jesus' name. Look carefully here. There are three invitations in our early service this morning. A young lad came to accept Christ. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. It's not necessary for you to go out of here lost. 
The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth, the Lord of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. All that's necessary, all that's left, is the confession of your faith in Jesus Christ. Like a child would you come. Like a, like a surrendered servant would you come this morning to say, I want to be saved. I'm not going out of here lost again. I want to settle it today. And I'm going to ask you to get up out of your seat in the balcony and out of the choir and out of this auditorium to come and say, I want to put myself in a position for God to use me. I, I have to admit that I'm not being used of God in witness. And I want to be. I want God to speak through my life, through my lips. I want to bear witness of Christ's saving power. Here I am. Or you may need to come and join this church. You may see something here that draws you, something attractive and dynamic. And so we're going to have three stanzas of an invitation, just as I am. And then we're going home, so you need to come. If you're coming, on the very first word, while we stand, sing.